Now, the title of this book will grab you. It is Faith, Purpose, and Politics, Running the Race of My Life. Immediately, I was captivated. Tell me about how you chose your title. Oh, you know, I don't think that I don't think I chose this title. It just came to me. And I because I know I was in the race of my life. Hey, Pam, I just opened the room. Just a few seconds ago, let me invite you to the stage. So, hey, Pam, can you? How have you been? We miss you in these clubhouse streets. Where have you been? <laughs> I know, I haven't been in it in a while. No, I've been um, just working. Working in Seattle and and um, stuff like that. Just, just busy. How are you? Welcome back to the to Clubhouse. We miss you, lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, thank you. It came up on my uh, my calendar, so I must have downloaded. I must have saved it somehow because it popped up on my calendar. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you, Miss Valencia. Hey. Good evening. Happy New Year again. <laughs> hey. Welcome. Happy King Day. <laughs> Happy King Day. Happy King Day. Welcome back to the space. We're going to get started. I see some folks are starting to come in. Hey, Kitty. Welcome, welcome. You're welcome to come to the stage. We just opened the room just a few minutes ago. But tonight's conversation, you know, we don't stay long. And this club is called Reaching Across the Aisle. We're here from 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time until 8 p.m. Every Monday. Every Monday, we try to bring conversations that bring us to the center we have to be very intentional about both sides of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, any independents, libertarians, whoever. We need to come to the center and figure out how we address issues in this country. Uh, Valencia and I, Pam, let me introduce you to Valencia. I'll, I'll do a brief introduction and she can come in right behind me. But Valencia ran for the United States uh, Congress in District 5 here in Georgia, John Lewis's seat back in 2020, no, 2022, she and I were on the ballot together um, for the U.S. Senate in 2020. So she has, and, and she has served her, her she served, she did a, her, her eight years in the Georgia House of Representatives. So she has a extensive background politically. So Valencia, this is Pam and Pamela. Pamela, I'll let you chime in right after Valencia. Pamela is now sitting on Pam, if, if I'm correct, you are a part of the NAACP in Seattle, Washington, where you are on a committee that is uh, addressing reparations. So Valencia, I'll pass you the mic. And then once you ladies introduce yourselves, then we will get started on the conversation tonight. Well, hello, Miss Pam from Seattle. Um, thank you for joining us tonight. I'm glad and pleased to meet you and, and honored, especially being with the NAACP and being on that uh, special committee uh, for reparations. So I look forward to the conversation tonight. Oh, hi. Yes. Oh, hi. Well, nice to meet you. Yes, I am on the NAACP. I created a committee called the Freedmen Affairs Committee. And that's where I operate right now as the chair of that committee. So, yeah, we're getting some work done. You're going to have to tell us more about it in just a little bit, Pam. But we're going to get started with the conversation. 
So tonight, I wanted us to talk about the civil rights movement, what happened then versus our reparations movement and what is happening now. I see so many similarities and I also see a lot of differences, but I wanted to bring the conversation tonight on, on King Day. I thought it was, was, was fitting for us to talk about where we've been and as a people and how we've gotten to where we are and, and how we move our people forward. So where you want to start? I'm thinking, you know, the civil rights movement then, I was thinking about it from King's perspective. Like, what could he have been thinking during that time? And one quote that I found towards the end, pull it up on my phone, is that I fear I may have integrated my people into a burning house. So I was telling someone I was on the app, on Clubhouse app yesterday in a room and I was telling them about a story when I went down to Albany back in 2020 and they were talking about King and how when he came through Albany, Georgia, they said to me that they ran him out of town. And I'm like, what? And then I started listening to some rooms today. They were talking about towards the end of his life, how he had like a 75% disapproval rating. Like he was not the most popular or most loved man you know, around. So towards the end of his life, the, the not, not a whole lot of respect for the work that he was doing. So when I think about where, where, you know, the civil rights movement and its impact, you know, I just, I don't believe we will be where we are without the work that was done before. So I pay homage to, to the work of Dr. King and all those leaders that came before us because it gave us at least some sort of a blueprint to, to how we can move forward right now. So I'm going to pass the mic over to you, Pam, and ask you, so what, what are your thoughts on this King Day as you reflect or, or celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King? What are your thoughts on the civil rights movement? Oh, yeah, I agree. I, I, I pay homage to, to that movement because we wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for that movement. So I absolutely um, have a lot of respect for King and all others during that time. I totally agree. Well, that's it. You want to chime in right there? Yes, and especially, you know, being a former um, state elected official um, in the Georgia General Assembly, um, you know, yeah, there, we did have Blacks that served, but now, you know, afterwards, you've seen so many more Blacks uh, being able to serve, and not just on state level, you know, of course, national on the national level and even, you know, um, even on the federal level as well, naturally and on the federal level. And sometimes I think when you said kind of uh, about Dr. King and his later life, uh, with all the work he had done, and sometimes as leaders, uh, as long as we're saying what people want us to say, they're patting you on your back. And I know this from experience as being an um, elected, elected official. And now not being elected official, but still involved in the community. Uh, and then as soon as you really uh, start saying something that they don't agree with, then they start kind of moving to the side and trying to push themselves. So I'm like, no, I don't think I want now. The whole while they were pushing you up, saying, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Keep on, we with you. But then when you start analyzing things that are going on and you might have a change um, in perspective. And when you have a change in perspective, sometimes those people who will follow you are not ready for that change in perspective. 
And sometimes you end up standing out there by yourself. Many times I, you know, have had to witness that and do that, but I still believed in what I was, what I was speaking on. And so, um, you know, as, as leaders, that is a, it's a hard, hard, um, pill to swallow is you have people saying, yeah, 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 I believe in what you're doing. Same thing, you know, we talk about Dr. King. And then later on, it's like you said, I think I'm, you know, people in a burning house. And it's like, okay, I'm the one that's the leader that led them, said this is the house to come into. But then realizing that all what I thought of, of my perspective was early on, some things have changed. And sometimes that does happen. So that's, you know, that's the part I want to, to, to put in is that, you know, people change, you know, and you never know ulterior moments what's behind, but people change, and especially if you start stepping on people's toes and really telling the truth. And sometimes some groups don't want the truth to come out. Yeah, Valencia, I was writing as you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, how hard it must have been for King during those years, you know, particularly towards the end when people were probably walking away from him, walking away from him. You know, they were, again, like you said, motives, you know, what's in it. You know, they didn't maybe didn't feel like there was anything in it for them anymore, or they didn't believe anymore, or they got scared. I can only imagine how hard that could have been for him as a leader. And you know, like you just said, as a leader, what that feels like. Chime in a little more on that, because that's where I was going, like, oh my gosh, how hard that had to be a lot of pressure and stress on him towards the end. Yeah, not only on on him or on the leader, but then those people that are close, like your family members who really, you know, kind of see what happens when you you leave from the, the front face of, you know, being out in the public and you have to come come home. You know, it is very stressful because as a leader you want you want what you're saying to be to be truthful. And especially if you set up your platform that, hey, if you want to know something, you go talk to this person or you listen to them and they're going to be truthful. But then sometimes you find out that what you thought was true was really was not so true. And then you're faced with uh, the decision to have to say, okay, do I continue on knowing that that's what I was saying wasn't all truthful? Or do I now pivot and say, I thought at that time I believed what, what I was saying at that time, but now I have new information, and what I thought I was being told or I understood to be the truth is no longer the truth. And that takes a lot of boldness and, and being courageous as well to be able to stop midpoint. And even years down the road, you've been saying, hey, this is what we need to do, and then you find out, oh, what I thought we need to do it's not really what it is. And then you also have to marry people on the side that may have been telling you along the way, hey, don't go down that way, or your people you listen to are really not who you should be listening to. And you're saying, no, I think they're good, they're good. You know, we're going to go this route. Then you find out that what the other little crowd was telling you was true. And so you got two things you have to face. You have to face being able to now stop and say what I thought was true was not really truthful. And then facing those people, that little smaller group that was telling you all along that you were right. So it is a huge battle. It's a huge battle. Uh, and sometimes you be like, I don't think I want to be the leader no more. I want to just sit back and follow like everybody else because it takes a lot to be a leader. Yeah, I had to give you an extra 
exclamation point on that one because you're right. You reach a point where you're like, is it worth it? I could, again, only imagine what King was going through. And as you were talking, I was thinking about those white liberals and he made a, a quote. I was trying to find a specific quote that he made about the, the white liberals. But I just want to welcome Waikisha to the stage. Hey, Waikisha, thank you for joining us. Hey, we, uh, hey. And I see we have Empress and Chief and Malcolm. Please come to the stage and Kitty and Dean, Deneen. Hey, Deneen. Hey, Dean. You guys are more than welcome. Everybody, you're welcome to come to the stage. We like to have a, a robust conversation. We like all kinds of opinions. But right now, we're talking about leadership and what King could have possibly felt, you know, as he was leading his people into a burning house. Malcolm. And Waikisha, Waikisha, since you were first up, you want to chime in on King leading, leading his people into a burning house? And then Malcolm, I'd love to hear from you. You know what? I'm going to listen because um, I, I got my own opinion. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to listen first before I okay. ask. Sounds good. Malcolm, welcome to the room. Uh, peace, peace, peace. Thank you for the invite. Uh, good to be here. Um, yeah, the burning house began in 1787 with that uh, document called the Constitution. Uh, you have a document that says you get to sell a core group of people, define them as three-fifths of the human being, and it takes a bloodshed war of almost a million people free up from chattel slavery. It's a little late now to blame it on anybody in the 1960s, <laughs> 1940s. So the foundation, at least in so far as Africans in America called Blacks, is the Constitution. We don't really want to deal with the Constitution. For example, a Constitution, think of this little small tweak if the Constitution was interested in racial justice. Currently, you have two senators selected based on the overall population of the whole state. European Americans pretending to be white, besides Hawaii, control all 49 states. So you might get one or two non-whites who slip in. If you tweak the Constitution with just this, one senator is elected statewide. The other senator is elected from the largest county or city. You would blacken the Constitution in one day because now Michigan would get Detroit, Baltimore, Maryland would get Baltimore, Jackson, Mississippi, St. Louis, Missouri. The list goes on and on. That would then give African-Americans 14 to 15% of the U.S. Senate, and we're 14 to 15% of the population. So remember, the Constitution, the whole concept of two representatives from each state, even when you have a state as small. I live in Columbus, Ohio. There's more people in Columbus, Ohio than one of the Dakotas, I think it's south or north. In the city of Columbus, we have more, and yet they get two senators. So because they so-called are interested in the small states being represented equally, we need to have a dynamic where racially, since we have 400 years of racial terrorism against one group, until you deal with the Constitution, you're not going to be able to make sustained changes. We're outnumbered, outgunned insofar as voting is concerned, 15% of the population. Now, internally, the African-American community without a constitutional change could significantly alter the balance of power, but it would take a political leadership almost equivalent to what Moses did in the Bible. It is interesting in the biblical narrative of, of the story of Moses. Malcolm, before you, before yeah, you give us more of a solution to the problem, let's mm -hmm. come. <laughs> I'm going to dial you back just a little bit, brother. Sure, sure. Pick up and continue, but I want to dial you back because I want to kind of keep us on right okay. now. 
Yes, we're reflecting on King, the civil rights movement then. We're going to come into the now, and that and you're offering a solution for the now. So put a pin in that, because I definitely want you to finish. But let's go back to Dr. King and the then and the the, the white liberals. We were talking about King uh, saying, it, you know, a burning house. He led his people into a burning house. Let's go back to there, Malcolm. Uh, well, first of all, we never heard King say that. We ought to stop saying that. We heard Harry Belafonte after King died, relate a story. King's reference to the burning house was specifically a reference to the transition of the United States government toward the Vietnam War and the breaking down of the war on poverty and those funds that was going to civil rights and should have been going to civil rights, now going to war. That was the first time he had seen that because remember, only war of his lifetime was World War II, the so-called war for world freedom. The burning house metaphor, King's house was burning in 55. They couldn't even ride a bus. So I'm not quite sure what we mean by the so-called liberal or conservative. In 55, you couldn't ride a bus. That's a burning house to me. You're being lynched in 50. King was alive. That's a burning house. You, you're physically going to jail in Montgomery, excuse me, Salem, Alabama in 65 because you can't vote. If you can't vote, the whole country's based on voting. In democracy, that's a burning house. So I don't know why the metaphor is supposedly the so-called white liberals, but the Democratic Party, I know people don't want to hear this, that's the group who voted for the Civil Rights Act. That's the group who voted for Medicaid. That's the group who voted for Upper Bound Program. That's the group who voted for the Civil Rights Bill. Uh, in the 20th century, one week bill, you can look it up, the Republicans passed in 57, it was watered down. In 100 years, the so-called right, or if you want to call it conservative right, passed one bill and fought every single one, including, remember, a Republican governor, excuse me, president, vetoed King's birthday. It was overridden by Congress. Had they not been, we wouldn't even have King's birthday. 83, Ronald Reagan. So I don't think King led his people to a so-called burning house. It's been burning since 1787. It goes back and forth. Last thing on King. We can't talk about King unless you talk about the community that made him. He wasn't really, in all due respect to that beautiful brother, he wasn't that special. What was special was the masses supported him. If King had walked to the White House with 10 people behind him, he would have never grown up Malcolm X. He would have never got into the White House. The Montgomery community is what made Martin Luther King, the Selma community, the Birmingham community. So for me, King's leadership, as brilliant as it was, was based upon the Southern Mass. Because remember, he got, he got here in Chicago. The masses weren't with him. When he went to Watson in 65, the masses were not with him. When he came to Cleveland, where I'm from, in 66, the masses wasn't with him. So if you look, after he leaves Selma in 65, from 65 to 68, it's hell for Martin Luther King. Because he had won the legal rights, denied his people, and he became less effective because the black mass, Black Panthers, takes over. So I don't think King led his people into a burning house. I think he's a brilliant leader. But to me, it's the masses of people. He gave voice to the struggle of the collective. I don't even think it should have been called Martin Luther King Day. It should have been called the group day. He wasn't the only one killed, in all due respect to him. He, he was a great man, but they tricked us. They took a movement of the masses and made it a celebration of one person. And as great as he was, I'm much more interested in the mass because briefly going to your title, it's the mass that can bring reparations. It's the mass that brought the civil rights movement. And so I would like to see us 
dial back the celebration of the king as much as I love him, celebrate that group and their achievements, and then that group become the model, and we move forward. Appreciate your time. This is Mal. <laughs> Leave it to Malcolm <laughs> to drop the mic. <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. So I'm going to pass the mic over to Eric. Eric, I know that seems like you've been having some issues coming in and out of the room, so I hope you can hear us. So we reflecting on the civil rights movement then. Any any insight that you want to give on King or the any pros or cons you want to give to the, the civil rights movement? Eric? I'm here. I'm, I just got here and I was having some mic difficulties. But um, by the time the round robins to me again, I'll probably have some thoughts. But I do want to say, you know, happy MLK Day, everyone. And of course, and as King said, when we come to Washington, we're coming to get our check. So, um, you know, King was one of our reparations champion. Not only was he a civil rights champion, but you know, of course, that included our reparations. So, um, continue to yeah, continue on with the dialogue, and maybe I'll have enough content by the time it comes back around to the Washington contribute. Sounds good. But let me reset the room real quick before we dive back into the conversation. So, I want to thank you all for joining us. If you're not following this club, please do. Reaching across the aisle, we are here. Mondays, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, just for an hour. Um, we are intentional about finding that center. Where do we find some balance so that we can get some things done in this country? We, we're having some real hard conversations. Our goal is to bring everybody to the table, Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians, and bring everybody to the table. Where do we find some balance in this country and how do we get some things done? Valencia and I actually were a part of an initiative uh, we both ran for office here in 2022, and we became um, one of the candidates, some of the candidates that were literally, <laughs> Valencia, give me a good word for what happened to us, because <laughs> we were literally, like, set aside, even though we were both running on the Democratic ticket, we were not, we were not the, the chosen one, so we were treated like we were not even a part of our own party, it was terrible. But nevertheless, when these votes came down, we found, we saw across the state, the anomalies, the discrepancies. It was, it was very obvious that something had happened in these elections. Um, the cheating is real. It's real, and it happens on both sides of the aisle. Here in Georgia, from school board all the way to the top of the ticket, not one incumbent lost their seat. And, and that's actually mathematically improbable. How can no, not one incumbent in Georgia in the Democratic primary, Republican primary, not lose their seat? It was what we saw in Georgia just was unbelievable. But nevertheless, we aligned ourselves with some Republicans and some independents, and we all came together to create an initiative called Recount Georgia 2022, where we addressed the discrepancies in our elections, and we actually had a court case. Um, our case was dismissed, but we did not sit back and, and not fight. So we're now on the other side of it, and we have, we've come together with a larger group, and we're reaching across the aisle. They're reaching, we're reaching, and we're going to find some balance, and we're going to find a center. And it's all, our start was election integrity and, and addressing these elections across the country, but specifically here in Georgia with, with our group. Um, so we're not going to stop fighting. So... Again, we come every Monday, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I wanted to reset the room, and I want to thank Solana for coming to the stage. I'll pass the mic to you in just a little bit. But we are reflecting on the civil rights movement then. 
You know, what has it done for us as a people? What has it not done? Um, King's legacy, you know, like Malcolm just said, it was bigger than King. And I, I absolutely believe that. My industry, I shared this last night. I come from the beauty and barber industry. And our industry, oh my gosh, has such rich history, rich history with the with the civil rights movement. Dr. King, one of his first checks came from our industry. Um, you got to remember our salons and barbershops were safe havens. They were safe spaces because they were our spaces. They weren't integrated spaces. So we had an opportunity to organize, um, do a lot of great work. To, to undergird the civil rights movements financially supported. I, there's a book that we've read as a, as an organization of, I'm a, I'm, I lead a beauty and barber industry organization. And there's a book that we read called beauty shop politics. And in that book, I learned that a Philip Randolph, uh, you know, who is the labor movement. He, his wife was actually a cosmetologist. And in the book, he really contributes his, his ability to do the work that he did to her being the breadwinner to her literally taking care of the family while he was trying to save us. So just such rich history and particularly in, in my industry. So when we think about the civil rights movement and all that it's done, it is bigger than King. And of, but of course, King is, 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 was the leader was the, I don't know whether he was chosen Malcolm, you can speak to that or Eric, you can speak to that, but I, I do believe that where we are today, and we'll go into the conversation at, at around the half hour with the reparations movement and how one has contributed to the other. But I want to pass the mic over to Solana. And again, welcome to the stage. Thank you, Cameron. Um, I just had a few comments um, like to Malcolm's point about like, you know, it's called MLK Day. I just, I think that, and I think MLK and the people that were behind him probably already knew that, but we, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say we know, because I don't want to assume what people know and stuff like that, but for the most part, white culture is very, like, hierarchical, and so it's like, we can never be like, oh, yes, groups can do stuff, because also, we don't, people don't want the groups to be doing things, and so, like, I think, though, within the Black community, at least especially people who, who do organizing and stuff, we know that it was more than just MLK, Right, like we know it. Um, it's just like how people will say, you know, oh, you're, this organization's leader. Oh, all y'all are in this organization, and it's like that's not the same. Black organizations and, and black organizing is just not the same as white organizing. There is no like, although his name King, there wasn't no just King structure. He had a council of people. Most groups all have councils of people that they listen to. There's not like, oh, but he put his foot down and said so we're not doing it. They weren't really doing it then, and we don't really see that in a lot of black organizations now true black organizations um but you know in a lot of white organizations it's like you're the ceo you are the or you're the board chair you are the last person you know everything goes through with you and you put the final say just like how people think that men in relationships should do whatever the guy says we still have that hierarchical like thought process and so i was just saying like you know it would be hard for us to, for i think america in general to really realize how many people were behind them but i think a lot of organizers do know and then also, uh, I think you kind of know this, camera, but I ran a campaign against the incumbent, the mayoral incumbent um, in my city. Um, and that's just the thing with the Democratic Party. You don't like they don't like anybody running against incumbents, even if you're part of the party. And so even though like I was I've been part of the party, I have leadership part of the party and all that kind of stuff. Once you join the 
the, the campaign against the incumbent, it's a totally different game and how people like will, will look at you or treat you or whatever, depending on what's going on. So um, just so you know, that's a very normal thing within the party. Yeah, it's normal, but it's not right. <laughs> See, technically, I mean, they shouldn't treat you wrong, like treat you personally one-on-one, like wrong, like, ooh, you know, or anything like that. They shouldn't. But the as someone who's part of the like the actual leadership, I can tell you that the um the within the rules is that the party has to defend the incumbent, period. Like there's no not defending the incumbent, which is good if we if we get in as as and it gets elected, don't matter how liberal or lefty we are, the party has to defend them. So that's the one thing that's good about that rule, but it's bad when you're trying to get in if you're going against an incumbent. Look, promise me that. Go ahead, Tamara, because I got to jump in on that. <laughs> I know. Here's the deal, Valencia. Let's ask Solana to do a room with us next month. Yeah, that let's yeah it's, it's a, the politics team up as a whole, and the, and the party is a whole nother thing. But I just wanted to comment on it because I heard you say, <laughs> you, you, oh, like, I've been there. That, you I, poke the bear, Solana. You poke the bear. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 me and Vanessa with that. I just want to let you know it's not just your party it, 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 or, or that state. It, it's a thematic thing among that uh, among the organization. Not, but it, they should But they should not treat you like personally one-on-one as an individual like any. They shouldn't disrespect you but they can't help you, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I was an incumbent, and that is not true about <laughs> the part of uh, protecting the incumbent. It is not true. And I'll leave that right there. Solana Valencia, please, I promise y'all, next week, this is the conversation we're going to have. So y'all in the audience, y'all get ready. This is going to be fire, because I already feel, I, I felt my blood pressure. <laughs> Valencia, I know I felt yours. Last <laughs> thing I'll say on it, there is a so I'm not saying like anything that we say is disproportionate in the in the world. It's going to be disproportionate within the party because it's mostly white folks. So I am not saying they 100 are doing what they supposed I, I to promise, do. I, I you, you, you'll tell me next Monday. Please come back next Monday. Let that be the conversation we have. We're gonna stay on topic tonight, <laughs> but I I want to have that conversation. But this year I know I feel it. I felt my blood pressure too. <laughs> <laughs> D Denise, welcome to the stage. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, uh, I am uh, kinfolk, I guess, to Malcolm because I was Cleveland born and uh, Columbus raised. So, uh, hello, Malcolm. We're in the same city. I, I wanted to just share a little bit. Um, being a child of the '60s and of the labor movement. Um, my father was actually in Washington, D.C. on the mar- when the march was going on, and they had to uh, call him to get him home because I was born two days uh, after the uh, march on Washington. My father was in the labor movement, um, and I wanted to kind of just infuse that civil rights movement and the, the practices and the... Um, participation of the labor movement and the civil rights movement. And as a child that grew up in that, my father was in Memphis with the sanitation workers when he was assassinated. And so being born and coming through that and also being a child, parents brought her into the world 
within the first five years, when you're talking about the civil rights movement, you're talking about MLK, Malcolm X, John Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy all being assassinated. So if we bring that like to real time now, what that how the world would be when you see people involved in the movement, um, where their positions were, where their power was, who they spoke to, who listened to them. I, a lot of younger people are peeling back that onion of what happened during that five-year span and also the acts that were, you know, being um, the Voting Rights Act, the, you know, all of those things that were going on um, were happening during that same time. And Malcolm can, can correct me or, 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 you know, chime in. When we're talking about reparations, what I also... I'm in a city that had a huge issue with gentrification in one of the sides of the, of the town on one side of downtown of the city. Gentrification was a huge issue. And when we talk about that, and I lived on the Near East Side, found a part of the city where were middle-class blacks and, and people that were owning companies and so forth it changed and we found that elderly people, their children and grandchildren weren't taking care of their homes and keeping the homes. And it has shifted now to um, a whole different dynamic and demographic that live in, in certain parts of the Near East Side. So the discussion has to be also when we talk about reparation of how we keep our communities, how do we keep them when I lived there, I was I was subject to redlining for insurance purposes, for interest rates, for all of that. When I bought my house on the Near East Side, so we also have to look at what we have, how we keep it, and how we use that reparation to make sure we keep what was already ours, and the importance of how we organize. Back then, it was the labor movement was involved in it, unions were involved in it. How does that look now? It doesn't look the same. Um, I, I'm in my year of 60. I turned 60 this year. So I've evolved from being a young child, being very closely involved with my father as a young child and understanding what that meant, the way he moved, how he had people show up at our house with wisdom. So, um, I think we need to make sure the younger people understand what that was and what happened and the specifics, but then also understand how we need to take care of what we had and, and keep those things in our family, keep those things as a part of our community because we're losing them. And a perfect example, you can look at Flag Wars, which is on, I believe it was um, on NPR or, or PBS, and it talks about the gentrification of the very part of the town that I'm talking about in Columbus, Ohio. Um, thank you so much for me allowing, for allowing me to share this, Deneen, and I uh, yield the mic. Thank you, Deneen. That was a great share, because as you were talking, I was thinking what you're asking is, and help me to make sure I articulate this the way you, the way you uh, were trying to explain it, but you were saying basically what we earned, what we learned from the civil rights movement, 
how do we translate this into today and and grow from this? How do we am I am I going where you were, Denise? Absolutely, absolutely. So we don't repeat and we move forward and not lose what we still might have. Yes. Eric, you want to chime in right there? I want to go into the reparations movement because that is where we are. And I pinned the article at the top that the median wealth for Black Americans will fall to zero. This was an article back from, I believe, 2017. Um, This was something when I came into the reparations movement and I was learning that was one. This is one of the first things that that was pushed, you know, that I learned, you know, that we are on a trajectory to be on the bottom, to be a bottom cast in this country that we built. Like we are we're headed straight for the bottom. So, Eric, you want to chime in right there as we move into the reparations conversation? Yeah, most certainly. And of course, you know, of course, a lot of um, opinion makers and a lot of expert sources, of course, um, they changed that number. They moved that number up to a sooner date because the um, the scholarly thinking is that COVID accelerated everything. So that date is more like 2032 now. Um, but who knows, things may level themselves out and it may still be 2053, but that's still not a long time. Um, that's within our lifetime. You know, we're blessed to live that long. Um, and this is what reparations is really about, is repair. And of course, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad and so thankful that this movement came along because this is the movement that this generation has been waiting for. We were talking about King and the civil rights movement. And um, I was in a conversation the other night and it's, it's, it's crystal clear. This reparations movement is generation X, millennials and Gen Z. This is our movement. Um, every 30 or 40 years of movement comes along to move, you know, people um, to move black forward, right? You know, we had the first movement, you know, of course, to give us our human rights. And of course, that was, you know, ending slavery and giving us, you know, freedom. And then, of course, we had civil rights, you know, they started around the 50s, so to speak, and and brought us the, you know, Civil Rights Act of 64 and gave us, you know, public accommodations and all of these, you know, rights to enjoy, you know, um, citizenship, full citizenship of the United States. And of course, there's still work to be done. But even Coretta Scott King, and since we're talking about Martin um, today, Coretta Scott King even said that the next phase, that third phase, is economic right. And reparations is economic right. And this is this is a precise, very professional, very well done, um, you know, course, approach to reparations. Um, by the people that should be, um, you know, leading, benefiting from the reparations. You know, I'm sure it's another frequent. You know, shout out to Dr. Parity, the ADOS movement, um, and of course, and everybody else that's, 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 you know, of course, doing the work to, you know, um, the nearly impossible work. But yeah, um, and, and, and we should make sure, um, just like I would just like his children. We knew who Dr. Martin Luther King was. We knew what the civil rights movement was about. Um, 
And I wasn't I wasn't born during the civil rights movement. I, I only came I came the next decade. But of course, um, you know, but I can imagine, you know, the people that were doing the work and some of those people are still doing the work to try to protect voting rights and those things. Right. But yeah, um, this this is a serious movement. And I, I'm just glad to see more people. You know, I'm, I'm glad to see that the word is getting out. This lineage-based reparations, um, exactly what Dr. King was talking about. He laid out the case, just like um, just like Gary laid out lays out the case. And from here to equality, right? You know, going back to where where the wealth robbing begins, or where you know we or where the wealth wealth deprivation began, and and it's by no no accident that we're here today. And of course, and so yes, though so, um, thank for um, bringing this up. You know, it's so timely to talk of, you know, you're a reparationist and it's King Holiday and we know King was more of a reparationist than, than we all knew. We thought King was just a, a dreamer, but he was also dreaming about reparations in our land there. And I'm going to piggyback on Deneen again, because Deneen, I think you really set the stage for us moving into this reparations conversation. Again, what we've learned and what we've earned from the civil rights movement how does it translate? And what Eric just said is it translates now into our economic repair. How are we going to keep our land? How are we going to you know, build on, on what we already have? How are we going to build community? We need resources. And that's the repair. That's the economic movement that Eric just, you know, just laid out with, this, with the reparations movement. I am a reparationist. I ran solidly you know, as a candidate for the United States Senate with the reparations platform, my goal was to create a reparations administration. The same way we have the Social Security Administration, the same way we have the Veterans Administration, we need a reparations administration. We need we need a, a infrastructure to house our redress, to house our repair. The same way you cut the check, and those agencies cut the check in this agency, specifically to those of us who are descendants of chattel slavery right here in America. So. I appreciate you really you you were solid with that. I appreciate you coming to the stage and, and bringing your insight because it really is propelling us. This is this is what we're building on. We're standing on this foundation, the civil rights movement. We we have a foundation. We have a blueprint. We know where to take this. King said it. I'm gonna play his 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 some some words from him in just a few minutes. But you know he said it. We come into Washington to get our check, and when we get these resources. And even in the interim, I'm not, you know, I don't negate the work that we have to do for ourselves to, to, to prepare for this. But in preparation, let's go get what we are owed. This is not a handout. This is a debt that is owed to us who are descendants of chattel slavery. So Ch Chaya, I'm going to welcome you to the stage and I'm going to pass the mic to you. You want to chime in on the conversation? Yeah, well, I was hoping I got in before you changed the topic because I really don't have a whole lot to say about reparations um, but what I will say, since we've moved on, is that, you know, I support reparations as much as I support the stimulus check. I cash those checks um, and I'm willing to cash um, whatever check they give us with reparations. But I don't think that they could ever satisfy what they took from us. I don't think America or the world has enough money to pay us off from the damage that they did. It's unmeasurable. Um, and that's kind of all I want. I support it. As much as the question was check, if you if we all settle on ten thousand dollars, I'll cash that check and go about my business because I believe that um, 
if I get 10,000, that's all they're willing to give us. And that's just never going to be enough. I think that, well, yes, first off, yes. But I think also what real, at least to me, um, when sometimes reparation conversations go to like just the check, when it's like when other countries have done like true reparations or whatever, it does involve a lot more than checks. It it does involve a lot more um, of chair power um, and and land. And um, a good example is what's going on in New Zealand uh, which they're nowhere near complete of doing anything they're supposed to be doing, but it's at least has a pathway. So they're like giving up, giving land back to the indigenous folks um, through through a couple different processes. And that's, I think that though, it's kind of a different story because they had treaties that that were literally two different treaties. Like they they signed one thing and the Europeans translation was a totally different thing. Um, and, um, so that's a different story in a way, but still here, I think doing reparations when it comes to like land, real policy, real things, real having education, like we're, we're never came anywhere close to really repairing. And if we only do money within the reparations or only do money within whatever bill it gets passed among this, that is definitely going to be a disservice. It has to be an, it has to be a holistic point of view and it has to be a holistic bill that truly goes into the depths of, of how the United States is structured and, and the education system and all kinds of stuff to really repair it. Just, just in the plain fact of having our neighborhoods, uh, neighborhoods tax base be how you calculate the money for our education system, it's unconstitutional because of the fact that redlining affected our tax base. So like just shit like that, like we would have to go in super deep for it to be a real repair. And, and it, and to me, I ain't even about the, about like the money piece per se because, like you said, it's 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 gonna be way too much if they were really trying to really pay people back. But I'm more about like what is the how can we make a long term effect that we don't need another check in or or something because it it will be a long lasting effect and long lasting power change. So so I'll ask you or anybody is is are, is are the Native Americans asking for reparations to receive it or can we expect them to try to get reparations uh, in the future. And the only reason I'm asking that is because we, we keep buying this land and hoping for land that was stolen, that was stolen. And I think this land is still up for debate, but not just those of, those of us in the, in the, in the, in, in the slavery, but those that this, this land belongs to. So I, I just wonder if, if we're if petitioning and bargaining for somebody, somebody else's land, what happens when they decide to come and get it? That's that's actually a good question. I think I think I think that one there's one we should be joining up with those movements um, that are people that are doing it because there are at least on one level of it. I know that there's places that are trying to be like, look, this was a treaty that you violated. But the problem is that those treaties were such massive land until like there's not really any movement happening. Like like Oklahoma is majority. Um, native, but it used to be w- way more. There's other states that like they would have to give up almost the entire state to fulfill the treaties that were before. Um, but there's other little treaties that people are trying to fight against, but I haven't seen that much movement on it. But at the same time, like uh, there has now been a little bit of a weird movement in the mo- in all the, in the in the native movements with a couple people getting elected with people. Uh, with organizations getting bigger, if you know what happened down in Nevada, 
um, they voted like 90 something percent. They, they increased their voting population by a lot because they had a, a native vote program um, in multiple different states. And they're starting to organize on a level that they haven't done in, in, in like 30 years. And so I think we're going to see a shift and a push for like at least saying like, hey, these are the treaties that y'all violated, you know, or at least like the stuff that you said you were going to do for these these reservations. What the fuck are y'all not doing it? Um, so I, I do think there's going to be movement, but I haven't really seen a, a whole land grab like that happening. But I don't see I, I see some of the younger generations talking about something like that, but I haven't seen it within the movement, if that makes sense. Eric, you want to jump? Please. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally, um, wholeheartedly, um, this, you know, of course, um, disapprove of linking our movement or our claim with anybody else. No, we've got a, we've got a unique claim. <clears throat> um, the, um, a lot of the Native Americans, they, they're semi-autonomous. Um, they, of course, they've gotten some land resources, some, some, some degree of self-governance. So that's a totally different situation from ours. And, and also just, <clears throat> we got Black History Month coming up soon. And of course, just going back to history, a lot of those tribes, especially the five, the five civilized tribes, um, they may even um, own some of the, you know, descendants of slaves or oppression. So I really hate con, um, kind of um, co-mingling those conversations when we get into reparations because of the complex nature of the relationships, the histories, because, you know, the five civilized tribes, they owned slaves, and some of them even participated in the Civil War on the side of the South, so they lost land. So the land that they had, they forfeited, and, and, and just like just like veterans, you know, land that was taken and was supposed to be, you know, given to us, um, that may be the issue there. So um, just, just for the sake of integrity, you always want to keep those claims separate. But yeah, I'm, I'm not opposed to anybody, you know, of course, getting justice. But um, I think we we owe it to ourselves, you know, to focus on ourselves because we we we've been the one that's been denied it for so many years, and, 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 and you know, we've been deprived of so much. Um, many other groups have been repaired, at least to a small degree, but we haven't been repaired at all. And so, <clears throat> yes, yes. So I just that's that's all I just wanted to say, just to um, just just to kind of. Yeah, for clarity, like coalitions are made, that doesn't necessarily mean that it dismisses one claim or another, especially on Martin Luther King Day. I just came from a few Martin Luther King events that that what we talked about was the fact that it's power in numbers to get the shit done. That doesn't mean that one claim overshadows another. That's not how organizing works. That's not how any of this works. Um, when you're talking about claims, Black Panther joined up with the poor whites, with the with the Puerto Ricans, with whatever, they wasn't um, it didn't overshadow what the needs of the black people was. It only just gained in numbers so that you have the power to, to you know, speak on these things, to get the press to you, to get, you know, the power of votes and stuff like that. So I never claimed, but I just want to make sure that's clear. The other part about it is the five nations is only one portion of the larger native and indigenous communities that have suffered and, and had all kinds of shit and still continue to get it, um, especially with places where there's no black folks, they are the black folks of that town and city, and they get fucked with um, just just as like like black folks do. And so I think the thing is is about understanding how how these things work. Not all natives are on 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 on, on just some some land. Also, the land that they got is some bullshit land. There is so much bullshit going on with that until 
um, like I can't talk about ending oppression for one group and say I'm not going to do it for another group, but I can make sure that black folks are are on the forefront of it because if you're black, if you're native, you're going to be like the worst statistic. You know what I mean? So in, in when you do organizing and you have a black black woman lens on stuff, it you it don't matter who's joining your group, you're going to keep that that same energy, right? So I don't think that ever will push another person's claim, but I just think we need to look more into into like what's actually going on on, on the native side of things. Um, I I always be studying all the types of of, of organizing and, and oppression studies and and what people are doing in, in the water movement and all that kind of stuff because we can learn from each other and also like just think about what happened with the water stuff. If everybody was out there when when shit was going down, you know, you never know what could have changed with so many people. Are, are together on certain things. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm I, not all out there for Native stuff, but I can see why, you know, if, if stuff was needed, I probably would go. Yeah, we will pray for them. Um, are you, I'm free, but are, are you Native Solana? Or do you identify as Native or Indigenous? Or? Just because I, I'm saying that we should team up with Native doesn't necessarily mean I'm Native. I'm actually, uh, my, my mom is, is from Mississippi. And so my dad's Puerto Rican, but my mom is a Mississippi. I'm raised with my mom with my mom. So I'm raised uh, identifying black. I'm raised pro-black. So my we probably have native ancestry down the line. That's a rumor. I'm not sure. But I'm it's just like if I were to push for or say we're gonna talk about anything. I just brought it up as a as a just to say, oh, this is going on. But since people were saying, oh no, 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 that's that's why I'm saying like there's a lot more to it. But otherwise just one piece of of the oppression of the United States that I was just bringing it up is not really like just because I identify with it or anything. Let's let's welcome Matthew to the room. I see Glenn has made it to the stage as well. Matthew, you want to chime in on the conversation, sir? Um, I'll say this: I am I'm part Santee Indian, and I'm here in Massachusetts right now, and that seems to be a big uh, conversation, a reparations push, but. When I was in Washington State, I was in a room full of Native Americans and then Black people started to come into the room. And it was this woman who is in a specific position. She's a, represent, a representative of Native Americans in Washington State. And when Black people arrived, her exact quote was, here comes the pity party. So they don't think too much of us. They don't think very too highly of us. So I would, I would just leave them alone as far as that because they see it as theirs. They see United States of America as their life. But as far as being black, representing black, I have a question. Um, someone mentioned about understanding this entire process dealing with reparations. Would that be? Would it be considered a policy, or would it be considered a right? And how would how does the lineage aspect actually work? Knowing that this is twenty twenty three, and a lot of black people are integrating with other races. Eric, you want me to take that, or you want to chime in, brother? Yeah, you can go ahead, and, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll follow okay. in if I need to. Okay, thank you, sir. So, lineage: those of us who are descendants of chattel slavery, we can trace our lineage back to the census in this country, to the eighteen sixty-five census. We can go back to slavery. We were property, so there's no, you know, this is not all black folks. This is those of us who can specifically trace our lineage back to slavery in this country. 
So Eric, you want to take it from there? Yeah, and that's done by, you know, by records and genealogy, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not really um, that difficult. And, and the, the criteria, um, the, the lineage-based criteria that, that our, you know, course leaders are proposing is that it's only, you only have to do it for one of your um, descendants, which, of course, you know, you got, we got four grandparents, right? You know, our mother's parents and our parents' parents. And just start going back, and if you can trace, and if you can find one of those on the 1850, 1860, or 1870 census, because they're done every 10 years, um, you met that criteria. But then there's another criteria, well, as far as how you've identified. Of course, and I won't get into too much of that. But yeah, it's it's lineage based, it's not race based, so it's 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 not designed for. And, and that second criteria was kind of designed, you know, for, you know, so it won't just be a, you know, just like, of course, anybody knows anything about, um, you know. Native American history, we had we had a period called the Dolls Road where people just came and started signing up and started claiming stuff. So um, so just to keep the integrity in the process, the, one of the um scholars who framed that eligibility, and of course had the four had the foresight to put that in mind. But um it's simple, either you are or you aren't. And of course, and so in 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 the lineage is 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 specific to those that descends from American slavery. Um, you know, and you can trace back on those censuses that I just mentioned. Thank you. And thank you for the correction, 1860 census. Thank you, Eric. But if you don't or if you cannot, because the question is the if, the if is big, right? Because I'm, I believe recently, not even two years ago in Texas, they found that mass grave that dated back 200 years plus. So a lot of us are still lost, right? So if you can't, or you don't have that trail, that's a big if. So what do you do with that gray area there? Well, here's the thing, and we don't want to make this too complicated. If you've been, if you're 30, 40 years, you know who you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you should know who you are by now. Um, I I have the play, I have the benefit of, um, I was raised by a, grand, by, by a man who was born in the 1800s, 1892, my great granddad. So, um, and of course he's, Obviously, during his lifetime, you know, almost 100 years, he knew, you know, his grandparents and, you know, and he probably knew some slaves. Um, you know, he's told me those stories. So um, it's and, and, and we don't and we don't like to belabor our reparations conversations with a whole bunch of what about isms. It's real simple. If you know your grandmother's name, um, you know, of course, and, and I know you're young than I am. I'm, I'm 52. Um, you sound young than I am. So you probably you may even still have grandparents living. And they can probably tell you who their grandparents are. And, you know, you know, county records, birth certificates, marriage certificates, um, the family Bible, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we don't. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's not that it's not that difficult. And we, and we have professional genealogists that can help with that endeavor. So the process of finding who you are, because keep in mind, we're not as far removed from slavery as we probably think we are. Just think about my granddad born in 1892. That was less than. 30 years after slavery. And so obviously he knew his parents and those things. So yeah, we're, we're not, we're not as far removed as we think we are. So yeah, um, genealogy is the, is the answer to accomplish that. So would it be like the 19s that like 1980s census probably would be better, but even then maybe a combination of the 19, um, 60s through nine to 1910 census, just because we know that, um, slaveholders were lying about a lot of stuff. We know that people were still being held on on land for a while, especially through, um, I forgot the name of it, but like through the half being slave 
thing. I can't remember it, but the but like you you're uh, you're you're still on the land, like you're purchasing the land, but you they, you still owe them so much, so you still have to stay on the land. Like we know so much what's going on around that time, um, that we probably don't have everyone's name on the records, especially uh we know that the and we also know that America just sucks at um trying to go into black areas if you look at just the latest census. So um wouldn't it be instead of having a one like one one point of reference of data, wouldn't it be better to have like multiple points of data to make sure that everyone's encompass? No, um we're trying to establish lineage for descendants of slavery, so you gotta go But there's not that many black there's no black like was there a massive amount of black folks that came to America after slavery ended? Um, no, to before nineteen before the nineteen sixty five um civil rights naturalization and immigration um act, um black immigrants were to the right of the decimal point. Um most black immigrants that, that are here now they came after they came during during the Reagan um during the, the first wave came during Reagan's term. So that would prove my point. That would prove my point that we probably should use more than just the eighteen sixties. No, the, we wait. But what, what I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying, they, they they are. We're, this is lineage based. We're talking about I, I, people that yeah. So if you were already here um, before, chances are you were here before nineteen sixty five. If you were if you were a descendant of slaves, but, but we technically um, could use a nineteen sixties census then. Or 1930s. That's what I'm saying. It's like the 1860s are not that reliable, but the but the 19 the 1930s even would be more reliable than the 1860s census. They're all reliable. I mean, they're they're there. I've, I've been able to find my um my people. I mean, those those records were you know because these these were free people then, and of course and um and 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 so our United States is one thing one thing about as imperfect as it is, it has. It, it, it's, it's done a pretty good job of keeping records. Um, you can even, I mean, findthegrave.com, there's a lot of resources, informal resources, but but the census records are pretty accurate. Um, and I've been able to trace my folks back to that time. Um, and like I said, and there's people that can help with that, but, you know, but the majority, I know most of the people that I know, they've been able to, um, you know, just following those, that criteria. Because like I said, keep in mind, you only have to find one. And with four grandparents, and then you multiply that by four, then sixteen grandparents. And you know, um, if you're a descendant of slaves, you can you can trace. But if you're not, of course, this is just not the claim for you. So, like, I'm tra- I, our family has already traced. Uh, so, this is FYI, this is not me. Um, our our stuff is already done. Um, but I'm just saying that I know that there were errors in data. So, so that's why I'm saying, as someone who's when we're doing a research paper, we're doing whatever, we're going to take different points of data. And because not every, not, never one data set is always going to be the best. And so that's why my question was, shouldn't it be several? And I'm not talking about after 1965, I'm talking about way before 1965. Um, because I, th- I would think that it would, it would just be more accurate. Well, I have a question on top of that yeah, question, because I did my lineage myself and I got as far as 1810. But in 1810, no one knew how to spell not a thing, not a thing. And a lot of them went without last names. So it got really hard. But um, I searched even the, the with the boat, the steamboat records up down the Mississippi when we weren't having, didn't have the Atlantic slave trade, but we were doing international, tra- tra- oh, you know what I'm talking about, domestic trading, where ships were going from Louisiana to Virginia or someplace via the Mississippi and 
from Virginia to Louisiana via the Atlantic Ocean. You have, there are some records there. I don't know if that's something that you could also tap onto the census records for proof. Let's get some more voices into the conversation. We're actually at the top of the hour, but the conversation is going really well. So I'm just going to let it just continue. But I want to make sure we make sure every voice is heard. Glenn, welcome to the stage. You want to chime in? Sure, Queen. It's, it's good to be here, Tamara. I mean, I love everything about what you're doing, what you're trying to do, and the fact how you're trying to rally us around a cause that's so, so, so important. And I was sitting here listening, and I have to jump to my room in a couple of seconds, but I was sitting here thinking we're the only people that would actually debate how we would actually administer something like reparations. And it's not wrong, right? But we're trying to solve a problem that really shouldn't be ours to solve. Think about this. Mars is about, what, 70 plus million miles away, and we're about within the next three to five years to send a ship to Mars, literally. Are you trying to tell me that, that a country that has so much knowledge, so much wealth, cannot figure out something that, you know, literally, like some of the things you said are really some of the things that some of the folks on this stage have said have been really good. But we have the ability to do it. We don't have to. What we need to be doing is, tomorrow what you always preach and what we always preach is, we need to just be demanding our reparations. They can figure out who it goes to and how we get them and how we identify. They can figure that part out. It's, it's not that complicated. Again, keeping in mind some of the things we've been able to accomplish as a country with the massive wealth and intelligence and artificial intelligence and everything else that's emerging right now. So, you know, I just want us to keep in mind that we can get caught up in a battle that really even shouldn't be ours, right? Our battle should be just give us our reparations, right? And, and even that, like determining how much and where, et cetera. I know a lot of different studies have been done on that, but but if, if we just extrapolate from what we should have received, and I'm not even talking 40 acres of the mule, I'm talking much more than that, the physical, the emotional, all the pain and, and the envy. Right now, you can sue someone from fall, for falling down the steps, you know, in their building, and you can not only sue for the medical costs, but you can sue for the pain and suffering right now. Very litigious society we live in. We have every right to be demanding that. And you know what? The intelligence behind it, the, the, the application behind it, we can, they can figure that out. We can figure it out together or they can figure it out, but we have more than enough capability to do that. So I just wanted to say hi, Tamara. You know, every time I see you, I just got to I gotta um, chime in and, and chat with you. Definitely come over to the Black Wolf Forum. We'll be over um, there in, in, in a short period of time, continuing Dr. King's legacy, but also talking about this sort of, this black tax, right? And this black tax shows up in every area of our lives, many areas that we don't even think about. It's, 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 it's sort of what we call implicit bias, right? And, and some of these other things. So we, we, we gotta keep having these conversations. I know it's painful, but sooner or later, the light goes off, we pivot the right way and we move to another another place. So again, thank you for the time. Shout out to you, Tamara, for doing a great job. And uh, see you soon. Awesome. What's the name of the room tonight? Because you know I'm headed over there and I'm going to encourage everybody in here, y'all, follow this man, follow the Black Think Tank. And when this room is over, because you know we're supposed to be over at the top of the hour, let's go over to the Black Think Tank. I love that space because I feel like in the midst of us fighting, our repair and our redress because we're going to get reparations. We got to be ready for it. So I go over there to learn to be amongst these great minds and Glenn, I want to thank you for all the great work you guys are doing over there in the Black Think Tank. So thank you. What's the name of the room tonight? Yes, uh, tonight, so so last night was the Black Think Tank. Tonight is the Black Wolf Forum. We're sister stations, me and Richard, you know that. Um, but tonight is 55 years after MLK. Is the Black tax more costly now than ever? 
right? So you'll see that in your hallway somewhere. But follow me if you don't. Um, yeah, join us, 8.15 Eastern. We'll be kicking off some nice music. Then we'll go right to an amazing discussion, guys. But Malcolm also has it in his, in his um, bio. So that's how I clicked on it. I got the link. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to be ready to rock and roll at 8.15. So, Andre, I'm going to give you the last word in this room, brother. Thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. This is a great room. A lot of love and great wisdom being shared here. Um, you know, I think uh, most of the things that I would want to say have been said by the Solana era Sarah, uh, Um But, you know, I definitely think we need to, at this time, put more steam behind the fight for reparations. Um, and what I have mentioned in an earlier book was something tantamount to uh, withholding our, sorry, I have kids in the background, withholding our patriotism uh, until we receive atonement. Um, you know, still trying to formalize what that looks like, but I definitely think it doesn't do us any justice to give everything to a country that knowingly, that, that we feel a basic and static antagonism that is that they know that a debt is owed yet they're refusing to pay it. Um, and in any other situation that would be called a bully and we would be considered a coward for not, you know, uh, unforgivingly fighting for what we know to be ours. Yep, ours. And I want to thank you guys tonight for, for joining us in this space, reaching across the aisle. Again, we're here Mondays, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 8 p.m. Please follow the club. Please share the room. Make sure you come back and join us. Let's make sure we all go over to Glenn's room. Um, what is it again, Solana? You said you had it in this PTR. Mal Malcolm has it in his in his um, in his uh, PTR in his bio. Um, it's fifty five years after MLK. Fifty five years after MLK. So um, what I do, just so people know, what you do is you put it into your calendar, and then you always have the link, even if it's the next day or whatever. I always put everything into my calendar. Awesome. Thank you for that. So Solana, check your back channel because. I know Valencia and I want to definitely have that conversation with you about the Democratic Party and how things work because they didn't work like that for us and it was yeah. so we, let's talk about that next Monday so let's um, you and I chat uh, between now and then just to be clear about how we could uh, move into that conversation next week if that works for you. Okay yeah I, I'll put you in the back channel. Yep, sounds good. Well, everybody, y'all have a great week. I hope you continue to enjoy the remainder of your King Day. And again, we'll see you back here in this club, reaching across the aisle next Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm closing the room down in five, four, three, two, one. Have a good night, everybody. Now, the title of this book will grab you. It is Faith purpose, and politics, running the race of my life. Immediately, I was captivated. Tell me about how you chose your title. Oh, you know, I don't think that, I don't think I chose this title. It just came to me and I, because I know I was in the race of my life.
When we come to Washington in this campaign, we're coming to get our check. Reparations, Martin said we coming for our check. Reparations, say it loud. One, two, mic, check. Cream, cash rules, everything around me. Dream. My legacy, you can't stop me. Coming for our 40 acres, H our 40 and our paper. Kick in the door. Coming for our 40 acres and more. Our 6.4. Trillion. Miss that no, we fought the Civil War. We came from the poor. Free. 